On behalf of Calvary Chapel Reading, welcome to the Bible teaching ministry of our senior pastor, Jim Jarrett. Here's Pastor Jim with today's study, designed to help us grow in the Word. Amen. Once you remain standing and take your Bibles and turn to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. And I'm going to read verses 18 through 32. So Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 32, beginning now in verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, They not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. May the Lord bless this reading of his word and our time together in it. You may be seated. Well, last week we began looking at this passage here in Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 32, a a section of scripture which is so absolutely relevant to our time and to our lives because these verses describe to a T what we see happening in our nation. You want to know what's going on in our country? You want to know what what is wrong with America? Well, Paul tells us right here. I mean, as a nation, we have rejected God and His Word, and, and we are merely reaping the consequences of our sin. We have sown to the wind, and we are reaping the whirlwind. And no place in Scripture more directly addresses this than does our passage. And this passage, more than any other, explains the moral chaos and collapse that we're experiencing in our nation at this very moment. our, Our problem in America is not primarily political, though that is a problem. 
But our problem primarily is spiritual in nature. It's a spiritual problem. And, and we began last week by looking at verse 18. And in this verse, Paul tells us the wrath of God is revealed from heaven. It's a simple idea, but one that's very sobering. God's wrath is revealed from heaven against the ungodliness and unrighteousness of the human race, and the human race deserves the wrath of God. And as I said last week, in speaking about God's wrath, it is absolutely important that uh, we remember that God's wrath is not the momentary, emotional, and often uncontrollable outburst of anger which human beings are prone to. It is not sort of a, a divine temper tantrum or an irrational rage aimed at people that God doesn't like. No, we are speaking about the wrath of who? God. And therefore, like every other attribute, and His wrath is an attribute, therefore, like every other attribute of God, it is completely righteous in character. God's wrath is His holy, righteous indignation and hatred of sin. It's his refusal to condone it or to come to terms with it. It is the settled, the intense, settled, determined, active opposition of a righteous, holy God against sin expressed in divine judgment. I mean, God is holy. Yes, God is love, but God is also holy. And in His holiness and justice, He must deal with sin accordingly. If He didn't, He wouldn't be holy and He wouldn't be a God of love. So He must deal with sin. His wrath is the necessary response of a righteous, loving God to man's sin. And literally, verse 18 reads, the wrath of God is continually being revealed or it is perpetually being manifested. In other words, Paul is telling us, it's happening right now. It's happening in the present. God's wrath, according to Paul, is both present and future. I should say, according to the Word of God, is both present and future. I mean, certainly men face the consequences for their sin in eternity, but also in the present time. I mean, God's wrath is constantly being revealed uh, it's constantly being made known. It is constantly revealed from heaven against sinners, both directly and indirectly. And you'll remember there are different aspects to God's wrath. Let me run through them again very quickly. First, there is what we would call God's eternal wrath. That's the punishment that God brings upon unbelieving sinners forever in hell. And that is irreversible. Second is eschatological wrath, which is a future wrath that will fall on this earth prior to the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Third is what we would call cataclysmic wrath. This is the wrath of God which produces calamity in the world. For example, the flood in Noah's day, the, the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, etc., etc. There's a fourth kind of wrath, consequential wrath. Now, this is the sowing and reaping wrath. You violate God's law, you sin, you violate God's law, and it results in certain consequences which are built into the life that we live. There's a fifth kind of wrath, the wrath of abandonment. 
And this is God removing His hand of restraining grace, allowing individual sinners as well as nations to pursue their sin and then abandoning them or allowing them to suffer the consequences. One man described it this way. It's a form of God's wrath in which he lets go of a society and lets it catapult full speed without restraint in the direction of its own sinful desires and devices and choices. That's America to a T. Because as a nation, we have abandoned God and he has returned the favor. And as I said last week, we're not the first nation this has happened to. We see the same thing throughout history. In Acts 14, verse 16, the Apostle Paul said, In past generations, He, or God, allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways. And so this is the story of all the nations throughout history. They go on their own way. And so, like the nations of the past, we have followed this same cycle of having the truth of God and then rejecting that truth. And so God has lifted His hand of restraining grace and He is letting America have exactly what it wants. He has stepped back and He is allowing us to suffer the natural consequences of our sinful choices without restraint. And it's just a downward spiral. And this is the wrath that is being described here in Romans chapter 1. God could restrain men, but He is so angry with their sin that He lets them go. And the consequences of their own sin is the outworking of the present expression of His wrath. So when Paul says here, uh, the wrath of God is revealed in heaven, or is revealed from heaven, he is speaking about God's wrath of abandonment. And this wrath, he says in verse 18, uh, is from heaven, and it's against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Literally, the Greek says, who are constantly attempting to express the truth or suppress the truth by their unrighteousness. So we could read it this way. Men who are constantly attempting to suppress the truth by their sin. Because you see, sin is so much a part of man's fallen nature. I mean, sin has pervaded and, and, and uh, affected man's entire being. There's no part of man's being that sin has not affected. That's what the depravity of man is. Sin is so much a part of man's fallen nature that every person has a built-in, natural, compelling desire to suppress and oppose God's truth. And of course, to suppress the truth presupposes that you have or know the truth. Because you cannot suppress what you do not have or do not know. And so Paul is saying here that there is truth that God has made known about himself to mankind that man is suppressing. And this is an action that provokes God to wrath. Well, the question then is, what is the truth that man suppresses and and why is man under and, and deserving of God's wrath? Well, Paul tells us now in verses 19 through 23. And in these verses, we see the three, we see the reasons for God's wrath. Number one, God has made himself known to every man. However, number two, 
man has rejected this knowledge of God, verses 21 and 22. And then thirdly, man has turned to idolatry, to gods of his own making, and that's verse 23. So let's look now at verses 19 and 20. Now the first truth that, that man suppresses is the knowledge of God, a knowledge of God. Look at verse 19. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. And so Paul is telling us that God has revealed himself to all men. And this is what theologians call general revelation. And it is important for our understanding of this text that we keep in mind the fact that there are two different kinds of revelation by which God has and continues to make himself known to man. These two categories are, categories are general revelation through creation and special revelation in God's Word. Special revelation is often referred to as saving revelation because it is absolutely necessary for someone to exercise faith in Jesus Christ. A special revelation is the way in which God reveals to mankind the way to know Him in a saving way. And this saving revelation is found exclusively in the written word. I mean, what we must know about Christ and the gospel and, and the plan of salvation is found and revealed in, in the written word of God. I mean, later in Romans 10, verse 17, Paul says, Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by what? The word of Christ, or the word of God. No one can be saved without hearing the gospel, which is found in special revelation. And so that is why it is critically important that we preach the gospel to the world. That's special revelation. The other category, general revelation, which Paul is writing about here in Romans chapter 1, is God revealing himself in a general, non-saving way. And it's called general because this knowledge about God is made to the entire human race. General revelation reveals the existence of God who, and makes known some of his attributes through creation. I mean, there is no one on planet earth, on any continent or island, or in the deepest, darkest jungle who has not received this general revelation about God. And so the fact of God's existence is not hidden from the human race. No matter where a person is on this earth, the reality of the existence of God is evident to all. But this general revelation does not reveal the way or, or how to know God savingly. It does not reveal Christ or the gospel or the way of salvation. This general knowledge of God is sufficient to condemn but it is not sufficient to save. So no one can be saved merely by general revelation. They can only come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ by the special revelation found in the Word of God. But no matter where a person is, God is, is speaking to them. He is always revealing himself throughout the whole earth. Paul's point here is that even apart from the Scripture. A certain knowledge of God is universally known by all men. How? Well, look back at verse 19. 
for or because, Paul says, what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. What can be known about God? You know, the word translated known here means that which can be comprehended. It can be translated knowable. So we could read it, what can be knowable about God? And God has made certain things about himself known or knowable. And obviously, finite man cannot know everything about God, even with the perfect revelation of Scripture. Paul's point is simply that what can be knowable about God, apart from special revelation, is known by fallen mankind. Because God has made it plain to them. The verse says, about God, what can be known about God is plain to them. God has made it plain to them. That means apparent. It means clear. It means obvious. It means well known. And so, what is know about knowable about God is is clearly evident to them. Why? Because Paul says God has shown it to them. It means He has revealed it to them. And this is an important statement. Because no man acting on his own initiative could ever discover God on his own or would ever want to. I mean, Paul says in Romans 3.11, no one seeks for God. No one. God must take the initiative to reveal himself to man. And as Pastor Chuck used to say, God is always the initiator. Man is merely the responder. So God must always take the initiative to reveal himself to man. Because if God is to be known, he must act first and reveal himself to the human race. And he has. And he does. And so what can be noble about God, apart from special revelation, is known by fallen mankind. I mean, this is not a a secret, covert revelation. You don't have to be an intellectual. I mean, all can understand as much as they need to know. Because God has graciously provided abundant evidence of himself so that every person has a general knowledge of God because God has made it plain to them. And how has God done this? And how does he continue to do this? Well, Paul tells us now in verse 20. Look at verse 20. For his invisible attributes, namely... His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. God has made his invisible attributes visible. Specifically, Paul tells us that God's invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived. The word translated clearly perceived means they have been discerned, they have become recognized or detected by the mind, they have been grasped intellectually. And this has gone on ever since the creation of the world. The verse says that God has revealed himself to man from the beginning of the world. This self-revelation of God started long before the New Testament era in which Paul was writing. In fact, it started before the birth of the nation of Israel, before the call of Abraham, long before the Tower of Babel or the flood of Noah's day. 
This general revelation of God began at the creation of the world. So Paul tells us that ever since the creation of the world, God's invisible attributes, and this refers to the divine attributes that belong to the person of God. So ever since the creation of the world, God's invisible attributes have been clearly perceived or clearly seen in what? In the things that have been made. What is that? Creation itself. Just as we can learn much of a writer by studying his work or of a painter by his paintings, so also man can look at creation and know that there is a creator. And he can know something of the nature of that creator that can be discerned from the visible things of God's creation. And so man attains this general revelation knowledge of God by observing the world around him and and seeing the work of God in creation. One commentator wrote, Even in the most ancient of times, long before the telescope and microscope were invented, the greatness of God was evident both in the vastness and in the time intricacies of nature. Men could look at the stars and discover the fixed order of their orbits. They could observe a small seed reproduce itself into a giant tree, exactly like the one from which it came. They could see the marvelous cycles of the seasons, the rain and the snow. They witnessed the marvel of human birth and the glory of the sunrise and sunset. Even without the special revelation that David had, they could see that the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork, which is Psalm 19.1. You see, Paul wants us to understand that from the very beginning, man has understood that there is a God. They discerned, they grasped his nature from what they saw in their world and in creation. Unless, of course, you think Paul is lying here. Right? That's what it says. Creation itself reveals, it makes visible God's invisible attributes. And look. If God says he's visible in his creation, then he's visible in creation. And Paul speaks first of God's eternal power. In other words, his omnipotence. I mean, anyone can look at creation and clearly see that it was made by and controlled by a creator who possesses power beyond human comprehension. A person would have to be blind to the the clear reality before him in order to deny the power of this Creator. And who can look at the raging power of, of the Niagara Falls and not be struck with the power of the one who created them? Who can look at the vast oceans, you know, the towering mountain ranges and peaks, the sun, the the moon, the stars, and conclude that its maker must be very powerful? And who can ponder without concluding that someone far greater than mortal man was the originator of it all? An all-powerful, eternal God is the only adequate explanation for the existence of the universe. No explosion of gases or chemical reactions could have ever created uh, everything out of nothing. What would be the origin of those elements? 
mean, there had to be an outside force who created everything. And there is. And it is God. You can see His eternal power. I mean, God is amazingly and comprehensively powerful. Secondly, Paul speaks of God's divine nature. God has made His divine nature known to every single person through what He has made. And His divine nature refers to the sum of His attributes. Now, this does not mean that we can learn as much about God through nature as we can through His Word. But even so, men are able to look at God's creation and in addition to His eternal power, conclude many things about His attributes. While ministering in in Lystra, Paul told the Gentiles there of the God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In past generations, He allowed all the nations to walk in their ways. Yet, Paul said, He did not leave Himself without a witness. For he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and and gladness. In other words, he's saying the very goodness of life, the good things all men enjoy, speaks of the goodness, the kindness, and the graciousness, graciousness of the God who created it and who provides it. And God has made His divine nature known to every single person through what He has made. And you can see the divine nature of God. And you can look at creation, and so uh, could a Canaanite or a Philistine or an Egyptian or anybody living in any period of history anywhere in the world up until today, and they're going to see that God is. In their senses, they will perceive God. And Paul says that God's invisible attributes, His eternal power and divine nature are clearly perceived, clearly seen, clearly recognized in creation. In other words, His being is not faintly revealed in what He has made. Neither are His attributes only faintly observed in creation. Instead, it is clearly revealed to mankind through what has been made. But not only has God given a general revelation that is seen through creation, as we'll see later in chapter 1, in addition to that, all men have in their conscience some understanding of God's moral law so that they know that their sin is wrong. That's why you could go to the most remotest place on the face of the earth, to a tribal people who have never heard about Christ, never heard the gospel, but they know intuitively, innately, that there are certain things that are wrong, that are morally wrong. What is that? That is the law of God that has been written upon their heart. In chapter 2, Paul talks about the fact that the law of God is written upon the hearts of men. And so not only has God revealed Himself through creation, He has also placed an inner sense of His existence and His moral laws inside every single person. And so every man knows that God exists. I mean, all men, even the most wicked, have some internal knowledge or perception of God's existence, of His power and character, that that He is a powerful Creator. And they also have an inner awareness of his moral demands. You see, mankind cannot avoid the evidence of God's existence and nature in creation. 
And that is why Paul says in the last sentence of verse 20, so they are without excuse. And the excuse that Paul has in mind here is the excuse of ignorance. This general revelation of the person of God, Paul says, is made known so that every person is without excuse. All men stand condemned before a holy God. There is not a man or woman anywhere who will be able to stand before God on the last day and say that he did not reveal that he exists. By general revelation and by the inner awareness of God's moral demands, the entire world is rendered accountable to God. Every person on earth knows that God exists. Every person knows a little of what God is like. No one has an excuse for not believing in God because God is evident everywhere. And so there is no excuse, no justification for atheism, agnosticism, or skepticism. There will be no defense on Judgment Day. All men are without excuse. You cannot plead ignorance. And so when it comes to our nation. Not only have we, like all men, received the general revelation knowledge of God, we have also received His special revelation in His Word in abundance. Our country was founded by the pilgrims, and it was claimed, our nation was claimed in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And they established their, as they established their colony, the basis of their civil government was the Word of God. From the very beginning, our nation was based upon Christian biblical values and thinking. It's evident in our founding documents. Biblical Christianity laid the foundation of this country. Christianity has supplied this country with its morals and values. I mean, Christian thinking was the predominant worldview. Ivy League schools such as Princeton, Yale, and Harvard were originally all founded as Christian institutions to train up pastors to proclaim the Word of God. Our nation has had religious freedom, an abundance of Bibles, an abundance of churches, an abundance of gospel preaching. I mean, since the beginning of this nation's existence, we have had the truth of God's Word and heard the truth. The gospel has been proclaimed far and wide in this country and continues to be. But in the face of all of that truth, in the face of all of that light, as a nation, we have rejected the truth. And we are actively suppressing the truth. And we are celebrating the the many things which God's Word condemns. So as a nation, we're doubly condemned. We're not just sinning against general revelation. We're sinning against special revelation. We're, We're sinning against great light. Why? As Jesus said, we love the darkness rather than light. So we are plunging downward. As a nation, we are plunging downward, believing that we can live any way we want without any consequences at all. 
It is no surprise then that we are under divine judgment, that God's judgment of abandonment uh, is being poured out on us. God is just simply lifting his hand and allowing us to reap the consequences of our sin. And so the truth that man suppresses and the first reason that man is, is under and is deserving of God's wrath is because God has made himself known. He has revealed to every man his eternal power and divine nature through creation, but man suppresses this truth in unrighteousness. And that brings us to the second reason man is under and deserving of God's wrath. Even though God has made himself known to every man, men by and large have rejected this knowledge of God. Man refuses to acknowledge God. Look at verse 21. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God. Literally, they did not glorify him. Or, Paul says, give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Oh, what a sad commentary on man. I mean, here is the truth that men suppress apart from God's grace in their lives. There is a God, he is the creator of all things, and so he is not simply a God, but rather he is the God. He is eternal, he is all-powerful, more powerful than all else because he made all else. God is the giver of every good gift, and therefore men are are to honor him and to live in constant gratitude toward him. But, Paul says, even though they knew God. And when Paul says they knew God, this does not mean they knew God in a saving relationship. Rather, it simply means they knew about God. They knew that He exists, that He is God, and that He should be glorified and thanked. What they knew about God is the general revelation of himself mentioned in verse 19, which is known by all men. And so although man knows and is conscious of God's existence and his power, although they know that he is transcendent, all-powerful, infinitely greater than themselves, instead of responding appropriately to that knowledge by glorifying and giving thanks to God, they reject and suppress that knowledge, and they refuse to glorify God as God. They refuse to recognize him as the author of all good who should be thanked, and they suffer the consequences of their actions. Back in verse 21, we read, first of all, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God. Literally, again, they did not glorify him. And loved ones, that is the fundamental problem with the human race. We do not acknowledge, value, treasure, honor, or glorify God. That is our wickedness and our great rebellion against God. And when Paul describes here the depths of man's sinful condition under the wrath of God, he doesn't first deal with the sexual sins of verses 24 to 27 or the list of sins in verses 29 to 31. No, what does he deal with first? Well, he deals first with the fundamental problem. We refuse to glorify God. 
And that tells us this is the crime of all crimes. The worst deed ever committed in the universe is to fail to give God the glory that He rightly deserves because above everything, God is to be glorified. And that is the heart and soul of the fallenness of man. He refuses to glorify the God he knows exists. Well, what does it mean to glorify God? Well, it means to exalt him. It means to recognize him as supremely worthy of honor and and to acknowledge his divine attributes. One man said, since the glory of God is also the sum of all the attributes of his being, of all he has revealed of himself to man, to give God glory is to acknowledge his glory and extol it. We cannot give him glory by adding to his perfection, but by praising his perfection. We glorify him by praising his glory. And of course, the the Bible continually calls upon believers to glorify God. David said in Psalm 29, verses 1 and 2, Give unto the Lord, O you mighty ones, give unto the Lord glory and strength. Give to the Lord the glory due His name. Worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. And Paul said in 1 Corinthians 10, 31, So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. And one day in heaven, the 24 elders will fall down before Christ on his heavenly throne and declare, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. But when man will not give God the glory that he is due, that is the ultimate affront to God. God is to be glorified. And that is the reason that man has been created, to glorify God. The Westminster Catechism asks, what is the chief end of man? Answer, the chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. And that is exactly right. We are here, our chief end is to glorify God. God is to be glorified. I mean, all of the attributes of God make up His glory, and man is to recognize that. And yet recognizing God's glorious attributes and acts and, and praising Him for them is precisely what fallen man does not do and will not do. Oh, they may be religious. They may even attend a church weekly. But the praise and adoration they're giving is not to the true God, it's to a God they've imagined in their own mind. When we look at society today, and particularly here in America, which has been so greatly influenced by the gospel, we see by and large a people who do not honor God, not in the slightest. In fact, for some time now, people in our nation have been working feverishly to remove every vestige of God, the Bible, and biblical morals and values from the public square. And sinful man refuses to recognize God and to glorify Him. And if that isn't bad enough, Paul adds, notice again verse 21, For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him. 
Give thanks to him. Scripture makes it clear that all men are the recipients of abundant blessings. Jesus said in Matthew 5.45, For he, God, makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. In Luke 6.35, Jesus said that God is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. In Acts 14.17, Paul said, God did not leave himself without a witness, for he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. God is the giver of every good gift. And therefore, men ought to honor him. We're to live in constant gratitude toward him. But that too is a truth that fallen men suppress and reject. Man, they, they do not acknowledge God as the source of all that is good in their lives. They, they do not express gratitude to Him for all that He has provided for Him. They don't give thanks to God for the food they eat, the clothing they, they wear, for the shelter they live in, or for the rain that they receive. They refuse to give thanks, even for life, for the, for the very breath they take and for the next beat of their heart. They refuse to recognize that it is in Him that we live and move and have our being and that He holds together all things by the word of His power. They take for granted the gracious provisions that God has given them and they certainly don't give thanks for the self-revelation that God has given them. I mean, why would they give thanks though, really? And they look at all, all the good things that God, by His common grace, has given us in this world, and, and they won't thank Him for it, because that would be to acknowledge that He exists, and that they are then accountable to Him, and that He really is the source of all that is good. But they reject that truth, and they reject that God even exists. Instead, they think that they have achieved everything on their own. But not to thank God is blasphemous because God has provided everything that is. Not to thank God for all He is and all He has done is a mark of an unbelieving heart. That's one thing that marks the lives of unbelievers. Ingratitude. Being unthankful. And it reveals a wicked, empty, self-centeredness. And loved ones, when a person rejects the truth about God, it puts them in a very dangerous place. And we see the result of their rejection of God as as Paul continues. Look back at verse 21. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. God gave human beings minds with the capacity to reason and imagine and think and ponder and meditate. Why? so that we might use them to know God and to think about Him and speak of Him and praise Him and and devise things in the world which would honor Him. But when men reject the truth of God's existence and do not glorify and thank Him, as a consequence, they become futile in their thinking. In other words, in their reasoning or in their thoughts. The word futile means empty, vain, useless, worthless, foolish. The word thinking refers to to reasoning or deliberating. 
It means to think or reason with thoroughness and completeness, to, to think out carefully, to reason thoroughly, and, and to consider carefully. And so to become futile in one's thinking means their thinking becomes useless, vain, and foolish. In other words, it is destitute of any real wisdom. Man's thought processes become ungodly. They are empty reasonings. Oh, sure, it's true that man still reasons and thinks. But he doesn't come up with the truth. He is more ready to embrace evil than he is to embrace God's self-revelation. And this is in the context of who God is and recognizing who God is. And Paul's point is that they, they conjure up in their darkened minds ideas and conceptions about, uh, about who God is that have no basis in truth, no basis in reality whatsoever. You know, they're plagued with empty, foolish thoughts about what they think God is like. Thoughts that are utterly false and worse, even blasphemous. You know, he's the man upstairs. He's that grandfatherly old gentleman who sits up there and winks at our sin and one day is just going to throw open the gates of heaven to everybody and say, oh, just come on in. And having rejected the revealed truth about God, they begin to actively grope for alternative explanations. They desperately search for anything to replace it, frantically looking for a, a worldview that would explain creation's order. One so-called atheist said, I know there are a lot of problems with evolution, but God is not a factor that I consider, and without that, this is the next best thing I can come up with. Futile thinking. And it doesn't matter if you're the most brilliant scientist, artist, or engineer. Everything you do with your mind once you have rejected God is futile and empty and vain. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 3.20, The Lord knows the reasonings of the wise, that they are futile or useless. And not only do fallen men become futile in their thinking, verse 21 also says, look at the verse, their foolish hearts were darkened. This word foolish means without insight or understanding. It means unintelligent, dull, foolish. It speaks of the inability to bring together facts and to make sense out of them, specifically the inability to conclude from the creation that there is a creator. You don't want to acknowledge God in your thoughts? Fine. God will darken your foolish mind. And this is the person without insight or understanding, and it's descriptive of unredeemed man's heart. It's the man who is without insight into moral or religious things and thus so blinded that evil is thought of as good and good as evil. Now, doesn't that describe today? You see, the sin of rejecting the truth about God inevitably results in a devastating effect upon one's thinking processes. It, it short-circuits man's rational abilities. And Paul is saying that these God-rejectors are incapable of having rational thoughts about God. Their foolish hearts were darkened. And the word darkness means literally to be, to be or to become dark or to be unable to give light. 
Figuratively, it means to manifest the lack of religious and or moral perception and thus to become inwardly darkened in respect to one's understanding. Rejecting the light, their hearts became darkened. Because rejecting the light always increases the darkness, doesn't it? When fallen man puts the truth of God out of his life, he creates a vacuum. And the darkness of spiritual falsehood replaces it. And the light that that God had had given men in nature becomes darkness in them. And they're left to, to grope in the dark about who God is and what he's like. I mean, Paul says their hearts were darkened. Their, their whole understanding, feeling, and, and choosing are without light. Reason is warped and twisted, and the light goes out. And out of this darkness, out of this refusal to acknowledge God, comes a growth and an increase in human arrogance. I mean, truth is gone. And so falsehood and arrogant foolishness rule instead. But this does not stop man from thinking that he is very wise. Look at verse 22. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. The word claiming means speaking with an air of certainty, stating something with with a high degree of confidence. And this this arrogant claim to be wise documents how self-deceived fallen mankind is. They declare themselves to be wise. You know, they declare the, the brilliance of their own intellect, thinking that they're wiser than the one who made them, certainly wiser than those uh, foolish rubes who were following him. And so professing with great confidence to be wise, Paul says, in reality, they became fools. Biblically, the description of the fool does not consist in an evaluation of his intellectual power, but rather in a moral and spiritual judgment about the state of his soul. And this word fool comes from the Greek word from which we get the English word moron. Claiming to be wise, Paul says, they became morons. Morons, that's what he's saying, literally. But they think and profess with great confidence that they are, in fact, very wise. What an incredible deception. What an incredible deception. Instead of being wise, the outcome was a total opposite. They became absolute fools who were incapable of any sound thinking about God and the ultimate issues in life. Their thinking and reasoning is futile, empty, useless, and their hearts filled with lies and darkness, yet they still claim to be wise. And that is why it is seen as a sign of sophistication and intelligence to refuse to acknowledge God's existence. That's why it's a sign of sophistication and intelligence to accept the theory of evolution or theistic evolution. But by biblical definition, anyone saying he or she cannot believe there is a God or refuses to believe in God is admitting to being a fool. The psalmist said in Psalm 14.1, the fool says in his heart, what? There is no God. The fool. 
mean, the evidence of God's existence is so plain and clear. Because God has made it clear that to ignore and reject it is total foolishness. I mean, the biggest fool of all is the one who has rejected the light of God's truth, gone into the darkness, and now rationalizes that his distorted, vain, empty reasoning and thinking is really wisdom. I mean, he thinks he's a super mind, but the Bible says, no, you're a moron. It's that simple. And this is what happens to the person who rejects God's self-revelation and refuses to give glory and thanks to God. He professes wisdom, but he possesses foolishness. And I think it was R.C. Sproul that said, there is no fool so tragic as the fool who thinks he's wise. Another man said, the greatest fool in all the world is the person who exchanges God's wisdom of truth and light for man's wisdom of deceit and darkness. And as we look at what's going on around us, this is what we're seeing as our society really unravels before our eyes as men are calling evil good and and good evil. I mean, we are seeing the reality of these very verses lived out before us on a daily basis. I thought of this verse the other day when I read that the governor of our state, Gavin Newsom, mandated, get this, gender-neutral toy aisles for large retailers. That's unbelievable. He mandated gender-neutral toy aisles for large retailers here in the state of California. I mean, transgenderism and, and gender fluidity I mean, all of this gender perversion is nothing but an attack on God's created order. And I have lost track of how many genders they're saying there are. I read that, uh, I read that Tumblr has a list of 112 genders currently. I mean, who comes up with these? Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools. But what I find this interesting is that whenever you go to buy clothing or shoes, there are only two choices, men's or women's, right? <laughs> Claiming to be wise, Paul says they became morons. But they think they're wise. I mean, what an incredible deception. That their thinking and reasoning is futile, empty, useless. Their hearts filled with lies and darkness, and yet they're still professing to be wise. And this futility of thinking, this darkening of the heart and claiming to be wise, but in reality being a fool, is just one more example of God's righteous wrath of abandonment against those who have rejected his revelation. God is allowing men, he's pulled back, he's lifted his hand, and he's allowing men to suffer the devastating consequences their sinful choices lead to. And so the truth that man suppresses and why, uh, and why man is under and deserving of God's wrath is because God has made himself known to every man. However, man has rejected this knowledge of God, turned to idolatry, and thirdly, uh, well, that's what it is, thirdly, he's turned to idolatry. Look at verse 23 very quickly. I said very quickly, we'll see. 
The inevitable consequence of rejecting the truth about God is devastating. Paul writes that they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. So this is man at his lowest. Man rejects the truth of God that's been revealed in general revelation. He refuses to glorify and to thank God, and so he becomes futile and empty in his thinking. His heart is darkened, claims to be wise, but in his foolishness he creates false gods and worships them. That's not wise, that's insanity. Fallen man eliminates the true God from his thinking and then creates one that doesn't exist and calls himself wise? I mean, that's incredible. But man is a religious being. He's a religious being who by nature is bound to worship and serve something beyond himself. And if he will not have the true God, then he's, that's no problem. He'll invent a God. He'll invent a God that he can live with. And anyone who rejects the Creator will end up worshiping the creature. I mean, how foolish that man will turn his back on the Creator in order to worship something created, something that can die, decay, and disappoint. That's the worst thing a human being can do. You see, idolatry is not man climbing upward with higher thoughts about God. Idolatry is the total opposite. It is man spiraling down into a lower state of debased thinking and depraved living. Look at verse 23. They exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images. That's idolatry. And now notice the downward descent of the images that he worships. First, it was images resembling mortal man. And then what? Birds. And then what? Animals. And then what? Reptiles. Creeping things. Probably includes reptiles, insects, and the like. That is total descent. They knew God, but when they arrived at the bottom, they were worshiping sticks and stones carved out in the shape of mortal man, birds, animals, and reptiles, creeping things. As Isaiah said, their land is filled with idols. They bow down to the work of their hands, to what their own fingers have made. That too describes our country. Man trades the knowledge of the immortal God for pieces of wood and metal that are crafted into images, and he bows down before these images and worships what his own hands have produced, which is, in effect, worshiping himself. Man is worshiping himself. So man is idolatrous, and his idolatry, ultimately, even though he will not admit it, is the worship of self. He rejects the true God. He affirms in his own mind that he is wise. Therefore, he's going to call the shots. He's going to determine what is true. And because he is a worshiper, he creates a God out of his own mind that is the product of his own thinking and imagination, and he worships that God, in effect, worshiping himself. This is the ultimate damnable heresy. And it only serves to intensify his guilt because God absolutely prohibits idolatry and commands man to worship him alone. And the Lord Jesus summed it up when he said in Matthew 22, verses 37 and 38, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart 
and with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. God demands first place. I mean, this command says there's only one place that God, where God will be put, and that is first. And there will be no other gods, and there will be no idols or images of any kind. And this is precisely what man has violated. He has broken God's commandments at the very start, blaspheming God. I mean, man is not religious because he is ascending to try to find God. He is religious because he has turned away from God to idolatry. It is not an ascent, it is a descent. And when man rejects God, he descends into the pit of idolatry. I mean, how can an intelligent person turn to idolatry? Well, idolatry begins when people reject what they know about God. Instead of looking to Him as the creator and sustainer of life, they see themselves as the center of the universe. There's a lot of that that goes on in churches today. You know, the the great lie of loving self infiltrated the church years ago. So the The focus of many people is loving themselves. They place themselves at the center of the universe. It's what man does. Instead of looking to God as the creator and sustainer of life, he sees himself as the center of the universe, and then he soon invents gods that are convenient projections of his own selfish plans and decrees. I mean, these gods may be wooden figures, or they may be things we desire. They may even be misrepresentations of God himself, a result of making God in their own image instead of the reverse. But the common denominator is this. Idolaters worship the things God made rather than God himself. And so do not think for one moment that idolatry is a sin that only primitive peoples in the past were guilty of. Because modern man is equally idolatrous, only his idols may not be carved images as such, but things that God has made rather than God himself. There have always been people who worship the idols of wealth and health and pleasure and prestige and sex and sports and education and family and entertainment and celebrities and success, and power. And at no time in history have those forms of idolatry been more pervasive and corrupting than in our own day. Paul told Timothy that in the last days, men would be lovers of self, lovers of pleasure, lovers of money, rather than lovers of God. Don't you think that describes 21st century America? But Paul was talking about in the context of the church when he said that. That kind of idolatry is pervasive in the church today. Lovers of self, lovers of pleasure, lovers of money, rather than lovers of God. One man said, moral and spiritual pollution is pandemic in modern society and is a degenerative and addictive form of idolatry. Idolatry takes place at every level of life in every human culture. We can even turn Christianity into an idolatrous religion by substituting the glory of God for something else. 
We can make a God in our own image rather than responding to the God who is. The God who reveals himself in Scripture. And this will bring the judgment of God on the unbeliever and the discipline of God in the life of a believer because God will not tolerate idolatry in any form. And in the verses that follow, verses 24 to 32, we will discover that this downward spiral does not end with idolatry. Oh, no. No. There are even lower steps leading down into gross sin and debauchery that goes from worse to worse. Verse 24, Therefore God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity. Verse 26, For this reason God gave them up to dishonorable passions. Verse 28, And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind. This downward spiral ends with people involved in the grossest of sins. And though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. That's America. The truth that man suppresses and the reason man is under and deserving of God's wrath is that number one, God has made himself known to every man on the face of the earth, has since the beginning of creation. Except man has rejected this knowledge of God. And thirdly, he turned to idolatry, the gods of his own making. It starts with the knowledge of God, followed by the rejection of this truth. This, in turn, sends man into a free fall in which he is going further away from God until God abandons a society. You know, he lifts his hand of restraining grace and allows them to go unrestrained in the direction they've chosen to go so that they reap the natural built-in consequences of their sin. And at that point, at that point, they rarely find their way back to God apart from divine intervention. And so, loved ones, you want to know what's wrong with America? This is it. As a nation, we have rejected God and we have rejected his special revelation found in his word. Uh, we have sinned against great light. But the good news is this. Unlike God's eternal wrath, which is irreversible, God's wrath of abandonment is reversible. For though his wrath is constantly being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who are suppressing the truth, we also know from verses 16 and 17 that God's righteousness is constantly being revealed in the gospel. And that's why the only hope for our nation is that God in his infinite mercy and grace will intervene reviving his church and then regenerating the loss by the transforming power of the gospel. The gospel is our only hope. So how are you and I as believers supposed to live in light of what we've, what we've seen? Well, you know, what do these verses require of us? Well, you and I as believers... Uh, must be those who glorify God. We must be worshipers of God. You and I have been created to worship God. We're not to worship the creature or, or the creation. 
but the Creator. Not to worship the gifts that the Creator has given us, but the Creator. You know, as you and I live, we must be those who give glory to God as an ongoing lifestyle, not just uh, on Sunday mornings, but every moment of every day. We are to seek to glorify God. Secondly, we must be giving thanks to God in everything, in everything. We must give God thanks for what he has done for us and what he is to us. As one man said, worshipers cannot be complainers. We cannot be whiners or grumblers. We must be those who are continually giving thanks to our God. And loved ones, the mere fact that God in his mercy and grace saved us and made us his own, I mean, that, that is more than enough uh, to cause a steady stream of praise and thanksgiving to come from our hearts, right? And thirdly, we should be actively involved in telling others about the truth of God. We, sh- we should be sharing the gospel with those who are lost as God gives us opportunity. And fourthly, we should be praying. We should be praying for our nation. We should be praying for our leaders at the local, state, and federal level. And then we need to be praying for the church in this country, the persecuted church around the world, and then the, the, the uh, uh, lukewarm church in this country. That God will revive the church. That God will revive pastors who are downcast and discouraged. That God will call pastors who have compromised the truth for, for whatever reason back to faithfulness. And that God will raise up other men who will courageously and boldly proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because our only hope is in verses 16 and 17. Look at those verses real quick. Let me just read them. Paul said, For I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the just shall live by faith. That's our hope, isn't it? Let's stand and pray. of Pastor Jim Jarrett and everyone at Calvary Chapel Reading Palisadro, we hope and pray this study you just heard will help you grow in the Word. If you have any remaining questions or comments, please call us at 530-547-4400. That's 530-547-4400. Or write to us at P.O. Box 837, Palisadro, California, 96073. You can also email us through the website at ccredding.com. Thank you for listening. And may God richly bless you. Grow.